Good afternoon and welcome to the first episode of the Divorce Hub Thrive Beyond Divorce podcast. My guest today is Leanne Bamford. Uh, welcome, Leanne. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here. Um, so, Leanne, you're a social worker in Australia and um, you've got a great deal of experience working with separated parents and children, which is uh, really the main topic of our discussion today. Um, and that includes about 11 and a half years working in the Family Court of Australia as a family consultant. And prior to that, you worked in child protection, uh, managed a domestic violence crisis service and worked for defence. Um, Leanne, that's quite a, a varied resume, but your work in defence actually involved a few things that are really quite relevant for family law and also our current situation with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Um, would, you, would you agree with that? Yes, I would, Jennifer. Thanks. Um, I'd say that all my sort of experience um, has led me to having a lovely little toolkit of experience and, and um and skills working with families, particularly in the divorce um, and separation area. Particularly with um, defence, uh, I did a lot of work um, working with families when they were separated due to deployments and looking at grief and loss issues, how you cope as a single parent, how you engage with the other person while they're away, promoting children's relationship with that parent. And I also do quite a bit of work around um, critical incident stress debriefing for incidents such as the Bali bombing, um, when our uh, flight crews and medical teams came back, that um, I would debrief them. And there were some other, other critical, smaller scale critical incidents that um, occurred where I did the same kind of thing. And it really encouraged my interest in trauma and, and how people respond to a critical incident and how they process trauma and uh, the differences in how people cope and, and, and even surprisingly sometimes people that you may think uh, are quite resilient that responded and fell to pieces and others that you thought may not cope very well managed to. So it's been an ongoing interest of, me, of mine um, looking at trauma and, and incorporating a trauma-informed approach to my practice um, working in the sort of family law, divorce and separation arena. Okay. So Leanne, would it be fair to say that you're pretty well accustomed to not only working with families, obviously, but working with people when they're going through a crisis? Yes, yes, I would yeah. say that. And would you think it's fair to say that this current COVID-19 pandemic is a trauma event for our population? For a good many of our population, it will be. Um, again, like I said before, that, you know, surprisingly, some people will, may float through this and not be particularly affected um, but for the majority I'd say on some level this will impact and it will impact on how they cope and how they uh, function on a day-to-day -day basis. So is it fairly normal for people to be finding it difficult to cope with even everyday household tasks being a bit distracted um, finding it hard to concentrate on things that would usually be easy even you know, work if you're working from home, um, or even so much as reading a book. Is that a normal response to this kind of situation? I think it is, Jennifer. Um, I'm seeing a lot of posts and, and having some conversations with people that are, are saying that they're finding it difficult to concentrate. And, you know, even just to sit down and read a book, they're finding that they, 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 you know, ordinarily they sit there and be able to read and they're just not finding it, they're, they're able to um, concentrate. And this would suggest that um, our, our sense of, you know, that fight, flight and, re and freeze response to critical incidents or times when we were in danger uh, gets activated. And what we know of that is that when that's activated, that frontal part of your brain um, is kind of turned off in a sense. And that's the executive decision-making part of our brain, which does um, help us to make decisions, um, helps us to concentrate and take in um, information and details that we need. But in a flight or fight um, situation, that part of our brain needs to kind of be disconnected so that we can maintain a sense of safety and either fight or run for it. Um, and so, yes, that's, that's what's happening um, to a great deal of people. There's so much information. There's, there's, 
there's um, concern about our safety, there's concern about um, our population and, and their health, um, there's concern about our economies, concern about whether we're working or not or whether we'll have work in the future. And so it more than likely has triggered that fight flight response in us. And so yes, it is normal that people would be feeling um, agitated, uh, not able to concentrate, um, not taking in the minutiae of details, wanting things to get repeated again. You're hearing a lot of people say, oh, you know, the information's not clear, I don't understand. It may not necessarily be, it could be that the, the, the messages are not clear, but it also may be our capacity to actually understand and take all this information in all at once. And, and I think you've talked with me before about resilience, Leanne, and it's a word that we use a lot in family law when we talk about children being resilient. Um, what, what are your thoughts around resilience at the moment, both for parents and children? Uh, absolutely crucial at this point in time. And I think for a good many people, their level of resilience will be tested. Um, and it, it, this is part of why you see people coping in, in, in different ways. And so depending on the, your own history and how life has, has, what kind of challenges you may have had in, in the past, may depend on then how much resilience you have now. So when we're looking at resilience, we're looking at what kind of internal uh, qualities and experience you may have within yourself that's helped you uh, cope with life's challenges and adversities in the past. Um, looking at sort of what kind of things you, 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 you've done in the past to help you cope, um, looking at your sense of yourself, um, looking at what resources that you have available to you that you use um, outside yourself, such as, you know, your family, trusted friends, counsellors, medical practitioners, um, you know, the, the sense of safety that you may have in your own community. And these will all contribute to... Uh, a sense of resilience that will assist you in dealing with the situation that we all find ourselves in at the moment with this pandemic. And I think um, one of the things you and I have talked about, which actually led to the idea for this podcast, was that it's a little bit different for some people at the moment. Um, there are people who are having to self-isolate who usually live alone. And there's also parents who have children moving from one household to the other. Mm. And I, I want to turn to that for a minute, Leanne, but um, I think it's probably relevant for us to talk about some of your personal experience that you can bring to this discussion um, around your own experience as a separated parent. Um, yep. So you separated from your children's father when they were quite young. Isn't that right? That's correct, Jennifer. Yes, uh, my children were four and six when um, we separated. And I have to say, thankfully, it was a, a quite an amicable um, separation. And um, I moved a little bit closer to my family and my partner, um, or my ex-husband at the time, he chose to move overseas for a couple of years. Um, and uh, yeah, my children now are in their um, early to mid thirties and my son has two children of his own. And um, yes, we, yeah, so for the most part, um, throughout their growing up years, they, uh, he returned from overseas, but always chose to live interstate. So um, when they went and spent time with their father, it was packing them up, putting them on a plane and sending them interstate. So I was quite alone um, and they would often go for a block time. Um, and so I'd end up, so for example, most Christmases, um, I'd end up spending three to four weeks on my own while they were spending time with their father. And I guess I, I have a, a similar experience. Um, I separated from my son's father about eight years ago. So whilst I'm a family lawyer and mediator and parenting coordinator, I'm also a separated parent. And one of the things that really struck me is this afternoon, my son um, goes to his dad's house for the school holidays. So uh, I won't see him for almost two weeks in, in person. He'll be spending an extended period of time there, which is great. We have a fantastic co-parenting relationship. We've That's worked true. really hard to get there, but we've managed to do it. Um, but what it means for me is that I won't have my son in my home now for 
an extended period of time. And that's not something I've ever really had to contemplate because um, over the last eight years, I've developed a range of coping mechanisms to adjust to the times that he's not with me. So for instance, right now I should be um, heading overseas for a conference, but obviously that's been canceled. Um, In the school holidays at Christmas, we take turns to have a long block of time with our son so we can each take a holiday. And if it's not my year to do that, um, I usually take a break myself and, and go on holiday because family law shuts down at Christmas. Um, so I, I just, I find ways that I can occupy my time for those longer stretches and effectively distract myself. Shorter stretches like the weekends, I've usually saved all my social occasions for the weekends I don't have my son, although He's getting a bit older now and uh, he has his own social life. So um, I'm I'm actually getting two weekends to do things now. Um, But as I'm an extrovert and I need to be around people, it's the way that extroverts get their energy. Um, And all of those coping mechanisms that I've had of going to movies with friends, catching up for dinner, going to the gym, uh, even so much as, a weekly catch up with my parents going out to the local Thai restaurant for dinner. Mm. I can't do any of that anymore. And now I'm staring down the barrel of almost two weeks of no human contact in person at all because we're self-isolating. Um, so I, I, I feel like this, I'm not going to be the only person in this situation. And that's why I reached out to you to have a chat about this, because I thought you might have some ideas that can help not just me, but um, also other people who are looking at that situation and might not realise that um, it, you know, it's going to be different this time around, even if they've done it before it's going to be different. So I wonder if you could share with us some of your ideas about things that I can do that other people can do to cope with that aloneness. Yeah, okay, thanks. Yeah, look, I think there are gonna be a good many um, separated parents uh, who choose or are on their own that'll be in the same boat around this time. One of the things I think we need to understand as to why we may struggle with this is is that we are we are social beings. Our brains are actually hardwired for us to connect and to relate and to form relationships and to create a sense of being part of relationships or of a group or of a club or um, our work environment. And so, a great deal of those mechanisms um, um, are not. Uh, going to be uh, available to us due to social isolation. Um, And so that, you know, like you're saying, a lot of those resources and things and and, and things that you did that created your sense of resilience and how you coped um, when your child wasn't there um, is not available to you right now. And I think it does, it becomes quite a confronting and for some people, it could actually be quite an anxious and a frightening time. And so we were talking about your situation when your children were young and um, the, yes. when dad would come and, and the kids would have long stretches of time with him. Um, you know, as I guess with your social worker hat off and your, your mum hat on, how did you cope with that situation? Well, I think I probably look back and reflect on it with my social worker hat on, but um, certainly at the time, I remember the first time that they went and spent uh, a considerably long time with their father. He'd just come back from overseas, so obviously he was very keen to connect with the kids, having been away for a couple of years, and um, requested, you know, that you know he hadn't had a couple of Christmases with them either, so he wanted to spend Christmas with them. Our daughter's birthday is also two days before Christmas, so... Um, and so I thought this is reasonable and great. I've just had two years of 24 7, 365 days of my children. Um, glad to send them off. And so they went just a little bit before Christmas. My daughter celebrated her birthday with dad. They had Christmas and I felt a little bit empty and missed them and figured, well, that's kind of normal, that's all right. So I limped through Christmas and sort of got to the other end of Christmas and kind of thought, hang on, I can't play touch footy at the moment because we're on a break. There's not even any um, practice. Um, A lot of my friends have packed up and gone away on holidays. 
And I actually found myself on my own, alone. Not necessarily lonely, but on my own. And I actually got quite depressed uh, to the point where I felt I needed to go and see my doctor. And um, so we addressed that and, and, and we thought that it might be a good idea if I went and spoke to a counsellor. And when I was speaking to him, and actually I continued to see this counsellor for some time, even after the children returned. And I was saying to um, my counsellor, I don't understand why there are times when I will plan a weekend away where I just get away by myself and I plan for my parents to have the kids and we've got a holiday house about um, an hour away and I said I'll go up there there'll be no phone no television long walks along the beach and I said I'm fine and yet when the kids went to their father I was a mess and what we worked out was and this was my aha moment um, and where things sort of changed for me was I realized that going to, on the weekend on my own was my choice Having my children, as logically and, and as wonderful as and I accept that th them going and spending time with their father was not the issue, it still wasn't my choice to be alone under those circumstances. And that was the, 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 the root of the issue for me um, and why uh, I didn't respond so well while they were away with their father. Okay, so it's about choice then choice and control yes yes and i think this is the thing that you're going to find or we're as a as a community um, and as individuals at the moment we don't have a great deal of choice this pandemic has uh led to a situation where i don't know any country that hasn't had a government make some kind of directive that we must social isolate socially isolate and um, like I said before, we're wired to connect, we're wired to, to be in relationships and, and um, being part of things. And all of a sudden, all those mechanisms that we would ordinarily use that maintain our sense of connectedness, other than the internet and the television, um, have been taken away from us through no choice necessarily of our own. Um, Yes, we, we choose to abide by those directives and we know why we do that because we want to keep ourselves safe and we want to protect our vulnerable. But there is still that essence of we don't have a choice. This pandemic has, has impacted on our lives to the point where we are now stuck at home, not doing the things that we would ordinarily do that define who we are. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm just thinking about to last Sunday. I, I've had a rule for a couple of years that Sunday is a slow Sunday. Self-care, slow Sunday. It's, if you were religious, it, it would probably be called the Sabbath. And um, I don't do anything on Sunday that starts with should. I, I should be doing this or I, you know, I should be doing that. And I've done it to force myself to slow down and to spend time alone, uh, spend time at home, not doing very much at all. Um, if my son's with me, we might go out to see a movie, spend some time together without devices. Um, if it's me on my own, I might listen to an audio book or do a cryptic crossword. But, and, and I've always really relished those days and it's been a great way for me to just slow down and, and never end up with Monday-itis because I've had this day of just doing whatever I want without any constraints and not feeling like there's something else I should be doing. That's but, a good self-care practice, Jennifer. Good, yes, well it, and, and it's been really, really good for me. Except last Sunday, I, it just didn't work for me. Because I, I think it felt like, oh, this is my new normal. This is what I'm doing all the time now. Um, the, the no, there's no novelty to it at all. And I was staring down the barrel of, oh, I could be doing this for months. And even though I like it, there was some resentment around that. That's because, as we said, you chose to uh, have those Sundays where it was your downtime. It was time just for you. Um, and when, when we have that sense of choice and that locus of control and we have a purpose to why we've made those choices, uh, it works. But now, uh, like you say, every Sunday, every day is almost a, a Sunday. Um, and so it's not about self-care. It's more about self-preservation at the moment. 
Um, and so again, it's that, uh, that whole issue around choice and, and then how we respond to that perception of, of what kind of control we may or may not have in our lives. So choice and, and loss of control. So um, I guess, you know, we, maybe we need to be looking at things differently and looking at where we've got control. So um, I might not have control about leaving the house on the weekend, but I can control smaller things about what I do. Like maybe if I have a nap on the weekend. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's the thing we need to be encouraging everybody to do is accept the fact that, right, this is for however long um, our situation, we will be self-isolating and we will be spending many, many, many days at home. And for quite a lot of us on our own, particularly as a single parent. And so, as you say, child goes to spend time with the other parents and you are completely on your own. So you need to perhaps narrow down what your focus of control can be around. And this is what we do when we're dealing, when when I'm working with with clients um, and problem solving, it is about understanding what their sense or perceived sense of control is in their life. And then perhaps just taking it one day at a time or half an hour at a time and just looking at what choices you have and what control you have there. So it could be around, you know, what time I decide to get up in, in the morning, um, you know, whether I get out of my pyjamas and get into my daytime pyjamas or, <laughs> uh, um, you know, how many hours I'm going to work if I still have work available for me, um, you know, and then think about, right, well, I've got X amount of time. What am I going to do with that? What are the things that I've said, oh, my gosh, I'd love to do blah, 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 but I've never had time. Well, now you do have the time. And so they're the choices you can make around one of the things I think will stop some people. And I'm hearing it is that, you know, I've got all this time, I've got all these books to read, but I can't concentrate. And again, that's recognizing the stress and the anxiety that this situation has put us in normalizing that that's an okay response. And then perhaps doing something like deep breathing um, or some meditation um, or journaling or something to recognize and and externalize how you're feeling that may then help you to gain a sense of control and and I think it's being kind to yourself and if you're struggling to read um, an audiobook can be a great alternative um, it's yes. it's less effort involved and it can be quite soothing personally I used audiobooks to cure a bout of insomnia and I, I love just lying on my bed listening to an audiobook as I go to sleep at night or if I choose to take a nap <laughs> actually um yeah I found napping to be quite an effective way to pass the time on the weekend too <laughs> I do like naps um but I think you've touched on on some things there is picking up on activities that you enjoy and um you were mentioning to me that there's an activity you enjoy that you just haven't had time for that you're thinking about taking up again yes yes I um, love painting and drawing and um, I got fully into it a couple of years ago after I'd had some major surgery and it was just a, a tremendous therapeutic activity and as I became well and as work picked up and I got really busy um, that kind of went by the by and um, at the beginning of this year I had decided that this year was going to be a year I'd get back into painting and you know by the end of February I still hadn't had time and hadn't made any um, you know time on the weekends or anything so that is one of the things that once my work does start to slow up that I intend to to get into one because I enjoy it but art is also quite a therapeutic um, activity that that does assist the brain to process uh, things like depression, anxiety, um, traumatic responses to critical incidents. So there's a couple of reasons why I, I particularly want to pick up that um, interest again. Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing your paintings. Um, I think one of the things I'm going to do is cook the food that I want to eat, <laughs> uh, yeah. put as much chilli in as I want. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the things when I was trying to cope with these block times when I had the children away and I didn't have a lot of people around, you know, mainly because it was Christmas and they'd all gone on holidays, was things like, for example, my son doesn't like mushrooms. 
and I love mushrooms. And uh, he was uncanny. I'd make up a casserole and um, I'd sneak a few mushrooms in and you guarantee he'd, he'd find them. So one of the things that I, I would tell myself that I could celebrate and I could do while they're away was to eat the foods that I like um, and, you know, th that I wouldn't necessarily do while the children are there. So, yes, that's a good thing. Eat as much chilli as you want to, Jennifer. I, I will be, but you can keep <laughs> your mushrooms because I'm with your son. My I mother like tried... That. Oh, my mother tried for years to sneak mushrooms into food and one bite and I, oh, no, just no. I'm absolutely with your son on this one. But um, some, something else that you, you mentioned a bit earlier and I'd like to pick up that theme again is the difference between loneliness and aloneness. Can you just expand on that a bit more? Yeah, yeah happy to. And again, that counselling that I had, during that, Chris, that initial Christmas period that I spoke about before, one of my other aha moments was around understanding the difference between aloneness and loneliness. You can be lonely in a relationship. You can be lonely in a crowded room. Um, you can feel lonely, you know, in your work environment. Um, but, you know, people would perceive that you're not alone. Um, so... And the other thing is that what I discovered was that society doesn't really have a very positive view of aloneness, of people being on their own. Um, you know, my experience and um, my daughter's experience, actually, because she chooses to be on her own, um, is that people are often quite uncomfortable with the idea that you're not in a relationship um, and, or, you know, that you don't have a special friend or, or, or what have you. And we have, you know, there's certain kind of negative names that are attributed to people on their own, like, you know, hermit or, um, you know, bag lady, spinster. Or the cat lady. Or the cat lady, yes. Well, um, you know, and we often joke that, you know, we're going to end up old with, you know, a bunch of cats. So if society's not perceiving it as a particularly positive um situation to be in it doesn't help the person who is alone to reconcile that they are alone um, and this brought me then to thinking and this is where we're getting a little bit deep but to that whole idea of the relationship I have with myself and how comfortable you know I am in being on my own. And I struggled with that for many, many years, I have to say. I'm very much at peace with it now. And so I anticipate that um, this, this pandemic is going to possibly confront quite a few people with that whole idea of being alone and, um, and being comfortable on their own. And I think that is gonna be a struggle for a lot of people. Um, and there's another side of it, I guess, I, I see as, a, as the family lawyer is um, the parent dilemma. The parent who may have done the majority of the parenting before the family separated, um, whilst the, one, the other parent might have gone out to work, um, finds themselves in a situation where they may be separated from their children for a, a longer period of time and... Um, there can be a sense of identity wrapped up in the roles that people play in a marriage that can continue after separation. And I find a lot of people um, identify with being a mum or a dad primarily. And in a, in a sense, this is being taken away from them. We're in a crisis situation where they would usually see themselves as the rescuer, but their kids aren't with them. And, uh, you know, I think, I wonder if, if you think people are going to struggle with that and what they might be able to do. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the case. And I think to a lesser degree, they probably are confronted with that each time, you know, their child or children go to see the other parent, you know, you lose that kind of daily role of being a mother or a father, um, which we incorporate into our identity of who we are. But we manage it when it's just like, it, it's time limited. <clears throat> um, and when we can also have access to those other resources that help us to cope when we're on our own. But this will be accentuated now, I would suggest, um, during this period, you know, if children aren't going to see the other parent, <clears throat> we don't know how long it might be for. Um, 
And when we don't have um, access to those other activities or, or, or techniques that we use to cope, um, we will, ha I think, feel a very strong sense of uh, a loss of identity around, you know, being a parent, particularly if we value that role um, and, as part of who we are. And I think another aspect of it is that uh, some parents have different parenting values from each other. That's quite common, uh, particularly with separated families, and sometimes that can lead to the breakdown of the relationship. And um, I, there's an element of fear at the moment where people um, are sending their children to have time with or live with the other parent, but worried about whether or not that parent is going to be um, as vigilant as they might be and will the children be okay. And the, the family court's telling us if there's court orders in place, you really have to stick with them. Um, so there, there are parents who, again, the choice is taken away from them. Um, how, you know, they're worried about what happens in the other house. How do they cope with that? Do they need to let it go? And and if so, how do they let it go? Look, it, it's it's really hard. And I kind of smiled when you're talking about that because it reminded me of, um, again, my personal situation. Um, my ex-husband um, is a farmer and, and, you know, was living on the family farm. And so I packed my kids up and not only would I send them interstate so that they weren't just five minutes away, um, they went to a property that, in my mind, had a lot of dams that weren't necessarily appropriately fenced. Um, and without sounding too unkind, my um, ex-husband's driving record wasn't fabulous. Um, and he'd had a number of accidents where he'd run up the back of somebody. And so, and of course, being out in a rural area, he was on the roads a lot with the kids. And so I constantly, for some years, had this fear that I was going to get a phone call to say there'd been a car accident or that they'd lost the kids and found them in the dam. And I, it was a terrible struggle. And I had to sort of have this internal conversation with myself and say, you know, no matter what I may think of, of him, uh, he loves our children. And he would never intentionally hurt them or he would never intentionally neglect them. And I just have to trust that that's enough. And thankfully, it was. Um, I recall a time when um, the kids rang up one time and um, the property that, they were, that their father had was in rural Victoria and he'd taken the kids to Canberra. And um, I got a phone call and I said, oh, hi, mummy, guess where we are? And I said, oh, where are you? And they said, Canberra. And I said, oh, how did you get there? And said, oh, we drove in daddy's ute. <laughs> and I thought, you know, um, you know, they're both tiny. The, the younger of the two children probably ought to have had a car seat. And I knew you wouldn't have had one. And I thought, do I ring and make a big issue with this? Or do I just trust that he's doing the best he's can, he can? And I chose the latter and it all worked out. And it, it, it is, it's, it's not easy. But I think at some point you do have to trust the other parent that, you know, they won't intentionally um, put their child in danger or hurt them. And, and the reality is that um, every day the government's stepping up um, the measures to in, enforce this social isolation, social isolation um, and there's fines that are going to be handed out and um, everyone is doing the best that they can in Absolutely. a situation where this is all really new and different for all of us and we're all feeling a lack of control. Um, I wonder if we could talk about children a bit more now. We've, we've talked about parents and parents coping, but things are different for kids now and Think about thinking about literally three and four year olds. I've, I've got a lot of friends who were trying to work from home and that's challenging with little kids around. Um, mm. I'm just trying to make sure the cat doesn't jump up and knock the camera down. <laughs> but um, the you know, little kids are used to running off their energy. Um, playgrounds are closed. We've been told kids can't go to playgrounds. Um, mm. How do you, you know, entertaining a three or four year old in a house is going to be challenging. How do we help them to be okay? But also 
how do we keep that relationship going with the other parent who might not see them as regularly when, um, you know, trying to get a little kid on a, on a FaceTime call for anything more than a few minutes is absolutely challenging. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things there, Jennifer. Um, one, I think um, on the assumption that the parents hopefully do communicate reasonably well, there may need to be a conversation and a decision as to how you're going to explain our current world situation to a little person or to any age, you know, look at what's age appropriate for whatever age your children are. Um, I have a four-year-old grandson and um, he's obsessed with washing his hands at the moment. He thinks that's the best thing since sliced bread. So we're not discouraging that. No. <laughs> um, so, and, and, but one of the challenges that my son was complaining about the other day is that he, they all ordinarily have screen time limitations. And he just kind of sort of threw his arms up and said, oh, mum, at the moment, he's just obsessed with Bluey and I can't remember the other child. And he said, and I'm just letting him watch it because it's just peace and, you know, and he said, I'm just needing to be available also when he gets the, can you come and play with me, dad? You know, and um, he said, you know, I'm trying to write um, job applications at the moment because he's been stood down at the moment. And so, yeah, it's a struggle. Um, They've got a 12-year-old. He's far more um, aware of the world and he actually does um, tend to have a little bit of anxiety. And so, and he's quite an intelligent kid. So it's, it's having to decide, you know, to speak about this pandemic in a pragmatic way, in a factual way with him, encourage him to research and find out what he can find out and looking for age-appropriate um, uh, resources there. Um, Behind the News is a, a program that's run by our Australian ABC, which is a news uh, program for children. And, and um, I came across that the other day and it's quite um, informative. So then, um, in my, my son's situation, he's not separated, but then you get, you, you, you add on to them, not only, you know, entertaining these children and trying to explain to them in an age appropriate way why mummy and daddy are home and they're stuck at home and can't go to the park. There's that other issue of trying to continue to promote the relationship with the other parent. And like you say, four-year-olds are, you know, a little flibbity-gibbets and um, you'll get, you know, 30 seconds of concentration and then they'll be off. So, again, parents need to negotiate what's going to be age appropriate and what is possible. Again, there's choices here. We have some control around how we can continue to promote a child's relationship with the parent. And it would be using things like FaceTime, telephone, um, maybe encouraging kids to write a letter or do a drawing, either post it um, or at least have it that they can show, you know, when they do do FaceTime, you know, look, mummy, look, daddy, I've done you a painting or... Um, or take a things... photo of it and, and help the child send it to the other parent. Absolutely. Yeah. Back in the day when my kids were young, we didn't have FaceTime or anything like that. It was just telephone. And of course, overseas telephone calls were incredibly expensive back in those days. Um, so to make the most of the time when they did speak to daddy, we had a list on the fridge. Um, and so there was my daughter's list and my, and my son's list. And there were things that they were going to talk to daddy about when he rang. So during the week or weeks, you know, some, one of them might come home and say they got 10 out of 10 for a spelling. Oh, that's fabulous. Why don't you put it on the list so you can remember to tell dad? Um, it was a message that talking to dad was a positive thing, that it was something we were going to um, positively anticipate. And it was also a mechanism in which they um, had things they could talk. Because, I mean, how many times do you say to your child, how was your day? <laughs> what you do? Not much. You know, and yeah. this was happening with my kids. And I thought this, you know. So there are things that we can do that will help uh, continue that connectedness and maintain that relationship with the other parent if it comes to the point where it's going to be a long time before they see them again. And I think that there's um, 
really a responsibility on the, the parent who's away from the children, not to just to, to be in control of their emotions when they're speaking with the children and not upset the children about them being apart. And, um, you know, that, that could really have an upsetting effect on children. Absolutely. There's a difference between saying to a child, look, I really miss you, to then going, oh, daddy, well, mummy's really sad and oh, I just, you know, I wish I could see you and I can't do anything about it because that tends to prevail to the child a message that they need to try and help mummy and daddy feel better. And that's a reverse of the roles. You know, the parent here is, to be, is, is helping and, and taking responsibility for the emotional well-being of the child. Um, it's not an invitation for the child to, um, you know, meet their needs. Um, and it, that can subtly happen at times. And I think we do need to think about how we're saying things and what we're saying to the children during these times. So that's a good point. Another um, thing that came to mind when you were talking about your list on the fridge, there's a, a book that I've recommended to many clients over the years. It's um, called Mom's House, Dad's House, uh, Parenting Your Children from Two Homes. It's by Dr. Isolina Ritchie. And one of the things that she talks about doing is when your children aren't with you, to have a jar. And when you think of something um, that makes you think of your child, writing it on a little piece of paper and putting it in the jar. And it might be, you know, I, I saw a butterfly today and, um, you know, I've, it made me think of you because I know how much you love butterflies, positive things and yes. obviously age appropriate things and, and putting the day on it and putting it in the jar. And then when the child comes back or the children come back to that household, um, having a bit of a sort of ceremony where you, you pull out the jar and you go through and read them together. And the philosophy behind that was it's, it's an icebreaker into um, for the transition between homes, but it also lets that child know that you weren't, they weren't out of sight, out of mind, that mum or dad was thinking of them when they weren't there and there's positive things to talk about. I really like that. And it's also a message that, that even though they weren't physically together, that relationship continued. Um, and I think it also helps children to realise that being away from mummy or daddy um, doesn't necessarily mean that relationship uh, it doesn't exist, that, that it can, can continue even in a symbolic way. So I, I really like that. It, and it, I mean, just thinking out loud, it could also continue via FaceTime. You know, people could do a similar sort of thing and that would be something that would engage younger children perhaps as they, they see it as a thing we're doing. We're not just, oh, I'm talking to mummy, I'm talking to daddy, I'm being asked lots of questions. It's, hey, you know, let's, let's look at the special jar and go through it. Um, you know, that's another way that people could um, make those screen times with uh, with each parent work so that uh, there's something to occupy. It gives it a, yeah, I mean, kids are pretty task orientated. So, um, you know, that's a really good suggestion. And I would also suggest that particularly our littleies, um, but I don't know, it could be sort of um, caveman 30, 13 year old boy as well, who grunts, um, you know, a short, uh, but more frequent um, Skype or FaceTime, you know, that may only be two or three minutes. It's, a, it's what, it's the message is that mummy or daddy was thinking of you, just wanted to hear your voice. It allows the child to hear your voice. It allows the child to see your face. Most kids, um, particularly younger ones and, and certainly babies, um, are only, only interested in seeing your face. Uh, that's where they get their social cues and their emotional cues. And so FaceTime and, and Skype and those kind of things are actually set up and are quite age appropriate in that sense. They don't get the cuddle um, and there's nothing that, you know, that um, replaces you know, a bear hug from mummy or daddy. Um, but certainly in these situations, and again, it's about choice, it's about deciding what resources you have available that you can use to continue to um, maintain the child's relationship with both parents. I think another thing is for those older children, and I might have a 13-year-old that's quite happy to self-isolate with a computer, <laughs> um, is we is choosing to let go of control of the screen time a bit and um, choosing to communicate with them 
in their way. Um, they, they, they are all online. They're using their apps and things. And up until now, I think a lot of us have been quite resistant to that. Come and talk to me and have a proper conversation. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's choosing to do things in a way that works for them so that we maintain the relationship rather than trying to push them to do it differently. Oh, and it is, it's about getting um, familiar with what they're growing up with and what's, what's um, normal for them. I remember a father telling me one time, he said, oh, I was really worried that my son wasn't doing anything with his friends. And he said, I went into his room and said, mate, you know, I'm, I'm, you're not doing anything with your friends. And he said, yeah, I am. And he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing games now, you know. And, he said, and there was a bunch of them that were on you know, communicating and and, talk, and that's how they socialise these days. Yeah. It's not how we did it. And so then he realised that when he doesn't spend time with his son, one of the ways that he could connect was to get online and play a game with him. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he would, they play the game and they chat. And he said, I started to find out all sorts of things in his life that he, he couldn't be bothered telling me when it was just a direct um you know, conversation that had no activity or, or necessarily a purpose in, in the child's eyes. Yeah. So it is about um, uh, going with the times <laughs> yeah. and not necessarily, you know, realising that our children are being socialised in a completely different way to the way in which we were. I'd certainly still encourage, um, you know, um, lots of social activities, not during the pandemic, of course, but at other times. But yes, we've got to find these other creative ways to connect with our kids. I think the flip side, though, of, of all of that is coming back to my slow Sundays and device-free days is that not just it's not just kids who need a break from screen time. Um, families and households really need to take a day off social media and the news because um, we're just being bombarded with it. And... Mm. And I've seen the term hypervigilism being used. We're constantly on high alert with that flight, fight, flight or freeze response. Yep. And yep. even little kids aren't oblivious to mum and dad's reactions to that, are they? No, no. And little children in particular will pick up the vibe, the sense that, you know, things are not quite right. They might not quite understand what it is, but, you know, there's a particular way that the news is being presented. Um, you know, a lot of the media is, tends to still be a bit sensationalist um, and at times, you know, don't necessarily report the positive things, but it's more the doom and gloom. Um, and if, you know, if they're witnessing their parents glued to the TV and responding to it, you know, and a, ooh, ah, isn't this awful kind of uh, approach, kids will pick that up. Um, and children, particularly our littleies, um, probably, you know, sort of early, prim up to early primary school age, won't necessarily have words for the feelings that they are, they are experiencing. And so what do kids do when they don't have words? They act out. They behave. Um, and so if the behaviour is, is out of character or it, it's perceived as naughty behaviour, then they get punished. Um, and so the child then feels, well, I'm getting punished for something I don't really understand. Uh, so, again, it's about being very present, very emotionally available to your child and understanding developmentally where they're at and how they're programming the world and understanding it at the moment. And then modeling the behavior you want them to, uh, to exhibit and modeling how to cope, how to respond to our ever-changing and unpredictable world. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. as adults, we're struggling. So, you know, mm. why would we expect children to be um, coping? And, and you know, sorry, Jennifer, but that hypervigilism—you're quite right. That was sort of the other part of the question. Um, it is very much around that fight, flight, and freeze um, response, which, like we spoke at the beginning, is quite normal given the critical um, and ever-changing situation we find ourselves in. And again, it's about recognizing that that's what's happening for us, and then having some kind of uh, I guess, an internal conversation about, all right, what do I need to do so I'm managing that and so that I can help my little person manage it as well? Because 
we can't just send the kids off to play at the park and, and no. burn off that energy. I think there's a reason why schools have a couple of breaks a day because kids sitting down on task. Oh, there we go. The dogs decided to join us. Um, someone's walking past that. your house, aren't they? They're coming to my door, but anyway. Right. Um, they, you know, they, they can't just go and work off all that energy. And so, you know, we're, they're in the same boat as us, but they're just smaller humans than us. Or, well, in some cases, um, mine's actually taller than me now. But um, I think we need to understand that what you're saying is that kids are struggling with this just as much, but they, they don't have the words to put around it that we have. They don't have the words. Um, they don't have the experience. Um, and they don't even at times have the cognitive maturity to cope with an over, you know, a constantly changing and at times overwhelming experience. So what will happen is that they will feel stressed and they will produce, you know, a level of cortisol as most of us do um, in a stressed situation. Um, but again, because they don't have the experience, they don't have those words, they will act it out. And that's where we need to understand, you know, when they do decide to have a major meltdown because they wanted a milkshake and you said, no, it's, an, or, you know, a seemingly small thing when, the, you know, they absolutely have that horrendous meltdown. That this isn't actually about the incident that they they appear to be responding to. They're just overwhelmed and fed up. So what's something if little Johnny or Mary's throwing a tantrum um, and mum and dad just, what you know it's all too much for them they're looking for work they're stressed and they just want to sit and rock in the corner um what are some things that mum and dad can do to cope themselves in that situation and help the kids cope yeah yeah um look it's it's hard when it's happening to you and it, it all gets a bit sort of overwhelming but one of the thing one of the very simple things you can do is just stop and breathe um, and breathe, deep breathe, breaths. So there's research out that suggests that um, neurobiologically, our brains, um, particularly around what chemicals um, we are producing under critical situations, will change, positively change, if we just stop and take a deep breath, count to five, exhale, count to five, and do that four times. That's all it takes. Um, if you can spend time and do it for longer. And if you're, if you're doing that for yourself to calm yourself down and you're demonstrating that to your child in a calm and, and way, it, the child will then pick up that this is, this is a way, effective way of being able to manage and self-soothe. You're encouraging self-soothing, self-regulating, um, not for your, just for your child, but for yourself. Uh, so that's just a very simple thing that you can do. If it's looking at the fact that they've got too much energy or they might be feeling angry, anger is, is pent up um, um, energy. So maybe a punching bag if you've got one available. If you don't, I've heard of somebody um, getting a tea towel and just rolling it up and giving it to the child and just encouraging them to just hit the carpet. Good way of cleaning carpet. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, just acknowledging that there's that energy there that needs to get rid of. Uh, my son's got a walking um, machine, so um, he's got both the kids walking on that <laughs> at varying levels of um, speed, of course, but that's one way they're getting rid of their, their energy. Yeah. So, Leanne, um, before we wrap up, I just thought we might circle back around to our, our original discussion about... Um, the parent who's alone with no children and the, some positive things that they could choose to do. And I just thought we might just brainstorm some of those things. And, and you did touch on some of them earlier. Um, I mean, for me, um, Netflix is an, an easy option. Um, I'm discovering all sorts of great new shows and there's a lot of streaming services which have free trials. Um, reading a book or listening to an audio book, um, doing crosswords. And I know there's a lot of people taking up things like learning how to crochet and getting on YouTube and finding it out how to do things. Um, I could probably spend some time learning how to fix the tail rail that fell off the wall, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not at that point yet. <laughs> so it's just going to, it's just going to stay on the bathroom floor for a bit longer. Um, but um, you know, I think there's a, there's a, 
a culture in Australia around drinking and um, wine o'clock and people cracking open a bottle of wine to try and forget and cope with things. And it feels like that's probably not a good idea and that you might have some better suggestions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love a drink. I, I love a good wine. But one of the things I decided... Um, after I got my social work degree and knowing that I was a sole parent was that I would not come home after a bad day and have a drink because it would be all too easy to for that to become my coping mechanism and one drink would then lead to two to three etc etc so I've never done that Uh, may open a box of chocolates and eat that which is probably not so great for my hips Um, so we've got to acknowledge um, that there may be some, um, and there are lots of jokes at the moment around at the moment, you know, about, um, you know, drinking just to cope. And I don't find them funny. And that's not me being prudish. I, I just find it quite concerning. So there's kind of things that we can, we have to acknowledge, you have to have some awareness that, you know, this isn't great. And I'm, maybe I'm not coping quite as well. I'm trying to juggle homeschooling my kids and keep my business running or write job applications or you know um, I'm concerned about my partner who's looking like she might be a bit um, depressed or what have you and think well what what can I do again it's around choice it's around that locus of control one of the things I used to do a lot particularly when life was throwing me a few curveballs was journal I don't seem to journal quite as much um when things are going well for me, though I did try to sort of keep at least a, a gratitude journal then where I might just write, you know, five things that I was grateful for at the end of the day. But as soon as this, it became apparent that this pandemic was going to hit us the way it has and that I was going to be home and bearing in mind that I live on my own, except for my cat and dog, um, I went out and bought a book. I bought it in my favourite colour um, and it is just specifically my pandemic journal. And every night I write in it. Um, it's not to anybody other than, you know, I write it as if someone else is going to read it, but I have no intention of sharing it particularly with anyone. Um, and it's a way of externalising my thoughts and my feelings. It's a way of me processing um, how I may have dealt with the day or and what have you. And it, it occurred to me, I think, a couple of days ago, just how surreal um, this Um, situation we are that we're in and I'd heard other people sort of talk about it but for whatever reason it's taken me a few days to reach that so I just wrote about that and what that actually meant to me and why was it feeling surreal and you know um, and I haven't really thought about it since so journaling I think is a very good it's like having your own personal therapist in a way Um, and so I would certainly encourage that And we talked about, like you said, uh, that I was going to try and paint at some stage. One of the other things on my list when I get time is I want to clean out my office because it's become a bit of a, my office at home, because it's a bit of a a dumping ground or has been. Um, There are other things like you might want to learn a language. You know, there's a lot of online sort of programs that are are coming on board and being offered. Um, There's still a lot of people offering um, aerobics and other sort of Pilates and what have you online now um so it is about just being creative and thinking about what kind of things are available to you that you have some choice around engaging in yeah and maybe picking up those hobbies that have gone by the wayside so for me i've got a musical background but i've very much lapsed in terms of playing so i think it's time for me to get back on the piano. I'm not sure if the isolated neighbours would appreciate my saxophone <laughs> skills. Um, but um, but there's also things like pub choir, which is a lot of yes. people have probably heard of, but they're doing couch choir and, and they're doing that again. It was so successful um, the first time around. And, and I've, I've spoken to a few people about it and they said, oh no, I don't want to send my video in. But you don't have to. You can actually just record it on your couch and just keep it for yourself, you, like your journal. You don't have to show it to anyone Um, but it's it's helping be part of a community Um, I also uh, found out about an app the other day called house party Uh, it's a free app and you you join it and connect with other friends who are on there and um, you can chat with people 
by video or, or by texting when they're in the house. And it occurred to me, there's lots of people who are having catch-ups on Zoom and, and Skype and things, but yep. it occurred to me that if you're the person at home on your own, the maybe that feeling of, oh, but it, look, everyone else will be busy. I don't want to intrude on them and make them feel like they have to look yeah. after me. Yeah. But with this app, it actually notifies people when you're in the house. So people can choose to come and interact with you. And and I noticed one of the people, I, I had a, a few notifications come through the other day. And one of the people who's always in the house is the friend who's currently got COVID-19 and is self-isolating at home. So mm. that's how he's keeping connected to people um, and and doesn't have to, you know, phone them and go, oh God, they might be working or whatever. So that's a really soft way, I guess, to get that interaction with people without, if you're worried about imposing. I think that's a great idea. And then people are, are aware that, oh yes, so-and-so is at home and they're available to have a chat. You know, they're indicating that they're, you know, open to being contacted. And I think I think that's really good. I think a mutual friend of ours has, um, is exploring uh, an app called Marco Polo. And I think it might be a similar kind of thing. It's a chat thing where, you know, you, you identify that you're available and, you know, um, or you can invite. Um, and they, I think with that one, you can actually, I think, connect with them retrospectively. I haven't quite worked it out yet because... Okay. Um, but you know, I think there. I think we'll find that there'll be a lot more of these kind of um, apps and mechanisms that are going to promote um, communication and connectedness um, mm. while we stay in our houses. And we have to make the most of it. That's what we've got. There are our resources yeah. available to us at the time. We yeah. are. For, we're fortunate that we have the technology. Oh, um, definitely. I wanted to touch on the potential dark side of of. Um, doing all these new activities or picking things up. And it, it, I saw something posted on social media this morning and I can't remember the title of it, but it was about um, not feeling pressured to have all this self-improvement and um, being industrious during this pandemic. And and I think it's important that if, if you want to spend some time learning French or Spanish, great, but we don't all crochet a, a rug um, that's fantastic, but we shouldn't feel pressured to emerge from the COVID-19 situation um, being absolutely better versions of ourselves with all these new skills. Um, if that's not wh where you're at, I, I think that's okay, but I, I feel like you can probably put that into much more professional terms than I have. Well, I mean, the thing is, I'm not going to be Wonder Woman at the end of this um, in either shape or in capacities. Um, and yes, we 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 don't want to be pressured into meeting some kind of benchmark um, th that we perceive um, is being um, prescribed to us. Um, at the end of the day, it is all our own personal experience. Um, and you know, some might just really love the idea of blobbing and not doing much at all. Um, not necessary for the whole span of the time, but I'm not particularly interested in learning a language. I should. Um, there's that word should um, that you <laughs> talked about before. Um, you know, while I have the opportunity, because I'm hoping to go back to France next year, but um, I just don't think I've got the capacity anymore to take it on. So it's about being realistic. It's about what you can do. It's about what you enjoy. Um, and it's nobody's business but yours as to what you get out of this and, 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 and what kind of person you want to be at the end of this. And I would say that for most of us, we want to be, or not a worse person anyway, and having, you know, sort of coming out of this worse for wear. But um, yeah, certainly let's, let's look and share our stories, but not compare. Uh, when we start to compare ourselves with other people that might be on social, you know, media going, look at me, I'm fantastic, I'm doing French and I'm doing Spanish and I've learned to crochet and da 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 da. When we start to compare, we start to judge and we judge ourselves and we start to judge other people. Now's not the time for judgment. Now's the time for empathy. And we need to be clear that when we're sharing at the moment, we're sharing because we want understanding and we want connectedness and we want acceptance. That this is a pretty crappy time and we need to do whatever we can to survive. 
and be comfortable with ourselves. Absolutely, yes. One of the lessons that I learned and that through that critical sort of Christmas time that I, I talk about, it really was quite a lovely turning point for me. And it probably took me on about an 18-month journey um, around counselling and, and looking at, you know, my relationship with myself and what have you. And one of the books that I read around that time um, was a book called Intimacy and Solitude. Um, it's written by an Australian called Stephanie Dowrick. Uh, her surname is D-O-W-R-I-C-K. And really, the, the essence of the book is that you've got to learn to love yourself before you can love anyone else. And what I also took away from it was that, um, that, that if, I, if I don't have any choice around being on my own, um, or even if I do choose to be on my own, that I, I, I need to have an okay relationship with myself and um, you know, enjoy my own company. And um, it was a wonderful book around exploring some of those aspects. Now, that might be getting a bit deep for some people, but it may assist. And you can, um, you can get it online. Um, Booktopia here in Australia have it, and you can order it, and you can have it in a couple of days. And I've recommended it to quite a few people, particularly when they've started to become conscious that that whole being alone uh, as opposed to lonely um, and seeking some kind of meaning around the relationship they have with themselves. And it was a, a really good book. So, Leanne, in closing, I think the, the key message here is that um, we, we can choose what we can control. There are some things that we can't control, which we need to let go of, but we need to look for those things that we can control and make the choices within that locus of control that we have. Um, and something you mentioned to me recently was a, a Japanese sign. Can you just explain that as we yeah. conclude? Yeah. Well, given that um, one of my sort of interests has been trauma and, and um, a trauma-informed um, practice and assisting people responding to crises, um, I obviously have quite a few textbooks and what have you around that. And one of the books that I've got around crisis management has the Japanese character for crisis on the front of it. However, it also means opportunity. Um, and... And I think that's a wonderful way of being able to sort of re-script or reshape um, our understanding of our situation at the moment. Yes, we are in a crisis, but wow, we have such opportunities ahead of us. And we're seeing that happen. You know, we've got lots of um, medical practitioners, um, our governments, um, other people finding systems and way, you know, taking grasping opportunities, creating opportunities so that we can respond to this crisis. And we can do that in our small, minute household ways, uh, individual ways. We can see what opportunities this crisis is going to provide and present to us. Well, Leanne, thank you very much for being our very first guest and for the insights that you shared. Um, I hope that one day we can have another chat at the end of this crisis slash opportunity uh, and talk about, um, you know, how it is as a, you know, after it. Um, where have we got to since then? But um, thank you very much for your time and um, I look forward to seeing you virtually again. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Jennifer. Bye Thank for you. now.